This week on a lively experiment, a coalition of mayors and managers sues the state and the General Assembly. We'll tell you why. And the Board of Education announces tuition increases for URI, RIC, and CCRI. A lively experiment is generously underwritten by... For more than 30 years, A Lively Experiment has provided insight and analysis of important political issues that face Rhode Islanders. I'm John Hazen White, Jr., and I'm proud to support this great program and Rhode Island PBS. Joining us this week, former chairman of the Rhode Island Democrat Party, Phil Lynch, former state representative Doreen Costa, and businessman and treasurer for the Rhode Island Commerce Corporation Board of Directors, Carl Waddenston. Welcome, everybody. It is great to be back with you this week. The long-awaited public phase of the House impeachment hearings got underway Wednesday. We'll get to that uh, in a moment. But first, more than a dozen mayors and town managers gathered this week to announce they are suing the state over the so-called evergreen contract legislation passed last spring. But what are their chances of prevailing? Uh, let's start with our resident attorney, I, I talked about this last spring. We talked a lot about it on the, on the panel. Short of repealing the legislation, I don't know what they have. But you've taken a look at this. I know you're not litigating the case. Is it slim? Is it possible? Oh, I love when you ask me to give legal advice, and then I get sued after I leave the program. <laughs> this is a no-sue zone here. You're off the record. Look, it's a very, very difficult situation. I understand and I sympathize with the mayors uh, that have filed the lawsuit. But the, the issue was widely debated. There was a lot of public, public hearings and discussion about it during the last legislative session. And the legislator, you know, decided um, in accordance with the governor who signed it into law that the legislation that was eventually passed was a fair way to level the playing field with respect to unions negotiating their contracts. Obviously the mayors don't think so. They didn't think so then. Um, they made a strong argument to the legislature when the when the bill was being considered uh, and the legislator, legislature decided differently. I don't know what's going to happen legally. I suspect that it's going to be a difficult case to win. Both because sides the, the courts are hesitant to get involved in what in yeah, legislation, right? I think so. I think so. And, I, and look, and the problem is that, that you can see both sides. You know, the mayors feel like, you know, that they've been sort of put at a disadvantage now when negotiating a contract with the union. And the union's position was, and it was really exacerbated by what happened in East Providence, where the, the contract ended and the city unilaterally made dramatic cuts to wages as well as other benefits, and the union obviously had a problem with that. So... Um, they you know, use that example, though, but that was 10 years ago in a perfect storm of situation. I'm not saying that couldn't happen again. As you were watching this being passed, what did you think? Well, first of all, um, I don't blame the mayors for wanting to get involved. I mean, I think they should. It's their employees. They're the mayors or the cities or the towns. Do I believe in a perpetual contract? I mean, they do call it evergreen, but what it really is, is a perpetual contract. Um, I'm not really sure how I feel about it. It's, it's Are they going to win the case? I have. I don't ever remember anybody suing the General Assembly and, and winning a case. But they, but they do have a good case. I think they do. I mean, they run the cities and towns. They should be able to manage their employees. It's just like the managers of a store. They're the ones that will determine their pay rate, their pay grade, their hours. I mean, they're they're the heart and soul of each city and town. I think they should have a hand in it. Carl. So I'm the business guy in this. Yep. And By the way, I gave up my seat to Kyle. Yeah. yeah, thank you. Thank you. Usually it's like those athletes that get paid, you know, for giving up your jersey. Exactly. <laughs> Carl steps in. So, so, so from a business perspective, 
I look at this, we have Rhode Islanders fighting Rhode Islanders. Here's the cities and towns fighting the state, and the state fighting the cities and towns. And as somebody sitting on the sidelines, I'm trying to figure out, are we one state together? Where is the disparity that we have to legislate how we're going to negotiate and how to level a playing field? And it gets to be more deep-rooted because I look at it just from a, a different set of eyes because I'm on the sidelines. And I pulled up an article from New York Times, Rhode Island averts pension disaster without raising taxes. And the premise of the article was, we may be entering a new physical ice age and a long period where demographic forces will make financing cities and states even harder than it is now. So I think that your roster here today has a lot to do with where do we get money, where do we get revenue from, and how do we do more with less? Because if we're shrinking as a state and shrinking in, in retaining revenues, there's going to be a lot of big problems, and this is just the beginning of them. Yeah, we'll keep track of it. And also, it doesn't in state court, it doesn't happen anytime soon. They might expedite it. But also, a lot of these contracts are not up the mayor's said they're going to be coming up in a year, year and a half. So I think a lot of it is a continuation of the philosophical argument that the two sides have, and they couldn't breach their differences when, when they dealt with this before the legislature. And I think the mayors want to make a point. I'm not sure that the lawsuit is going to end the way they want or in a timely fashion, but it certainly adds to the discussion, and, and maybe this discussion will continue at the State House again this year. All right. Uh, I don't know how New York Mayor Bill de Blasio spent tens of millions of dollars and shipped uh, now former New Yorkers who were homeless all over the country. We found out that six families <laughs> arrived in Rhode Island. They're putting them up for a year, and then I guess there are uh, residents and citizens, some would view them as a problem, some others as great citizens. When you heard this story, what did you, so we, so there was a big hue and cry, some of the mayors said we think this is horrible public policy, other people said no, we should be welcoming. What do you think about this? Well, I, I live in North Kingstown and we got, we got plenty in North Kingstown and I had to read it in the paper. I don't, and even the town manager didn't know what was going on. So not that we don't want to welcome them, it's the sneaky slimy way that de Blasio did this. Nobody, he, he did this. How, how do you put a families, move them into Woonsocket and Mayor, Mayor Baldelli Hunt is not aware of it? Or you go into North Kingstown where I live and the town manager, Ralph Mollis, is not even aware of it. I mean, we've got kids going into the school system. Nobody was aware of it. So it was his sneaky way of backdooring this without even letting the public know. And, and I would love to know, the million dollar question is, it's maybe one of you guys know, who knew? Did he just give them the money, give them a bus ticket, and say, here, you go to North Kingstown, you go to Woonsocket, you go to North Providence? Central I also Falls. wonder how you appropriate how tens you of that? millions of dollars from New York. This is like a $90 million program. Was that just kind of like in a special fund that they didn't know about? What do you think about this, Carl? Well, there's a right way to do things and a wrong way to do that things. That was the wrong right? way. <laughs> just give people a heads up. You know, if you have an issue, and it's a pandemic issue across the whole country that we have a big issue with homeless people across the country. And if it's going to be a strategy moving forward, let us know what it is, and let's try and figure it out and make the best of it. Mm -hmm. I, I would say probably two things. I, I agree with Carl. I, but what I don't understand is, in, with respect to Doreen's question, is who knew? Who in New York City knew? Like, how, well, that's I, what I mean. How did they, that, did they have to pass know, the council? I, I Where did this money come from? how this happened. Relocation um, account, right? It's bad enough that they wouldn't let, you know, uh, you know, a fellow mayor or mayors know, but I just can't yet figure out and have not seen an explanation as to how this happened in New York to start with. And the right. bigger issue, really, I think Carl is right, is 
homelessness, including here in Rhode Island, is a major issue. The governor announced yesterday that, that she's obviously aware of that. Um, there's a lot of talk led by the governor now that there's going to be some budget adjustments made to try to address the homeless situation in Rhode Island. I just came back from a meeting in Seattle. In Seattle, everybody thinks is the greatest place, and you've got Amazon, and you've got Microsoft. And, you have Pikes Place Fish Market. You have all these beautiful right. places. And it's, and it's in, inundated, I hate to say it, but basically um, with homeless. Yeah. Um, so it's a major, major issue, Kyle's right, from, from one coast to the other, and I think it's going to take a, a huge... Um, collaborative effort to address it because the issue isn't shifting you know a homeless family from here over to here the issue is where how do we stop exactly. as best we can but how do you problem. help them long term too because right now our unemployment is so doggone low that the Rhode Island Manufacturing Association we're looking for people anywhere so if these people have aptitude to work let us know let's get them let's get them into mainstream if you want to talk to talk about that or let's get them into a productive environment if there's no opportunity opportunities in New York and that's one of the impetuses for selling sending people here if they're able to work and do things let's get them productive yeah. I mean even the program the, the the little bit of information you can get about it is that they basically these these people that were relocated had to show that they could be you know exist for a year following mm -hmm. getting the money to move right. well, so they're well just I not think the cows on our social service the cows point is okay so then what I mean, right. just—it just didn't. It seems to be this half-baked, as best I can tell, um, thought that somebody had. Maybe another one of these instances. Gee, that sounds like a good idea, and then no follow-up or long-term planning in terms of how to address the real issue, right. which is why is it becoming so prevalent even here in Rhode Island that we have these this homeless problem. But here's the point, and I agree with both of you. A little respect goes a long way. You should have called the mayors of each cities and towns or the town managers and told them. Bill de Blasio was too busy running for uh, <laughs> He was off, well, that's it. That's he was working on his 1%. I thought it was zero, but, you know, close enough. But he should have had enough respect to call everybody and say, hey, look, this is our plan. He should have penned a letter to the governor. He should have penned a letter to every person, every city in town, all 39 cities and towns, managers, uh, mayors up. and give them a heads up of what's going on. Why did it take the new? This is a statement on the media. How come it took the New York Post a year to figure this out? You wouldn't think with all these thousands of people going across the country, some reporter wouldn't have figured it out earlier? I don't know. There's been a tremendous lack of information as to how the program started, where it came from, where did the money come from. Uh, even today, there hasn't been really any inf much information that I've seen as to how this all even happened. All right, if you have a child who goes to URI, CCRI, or RIC, uh, you may be facing a tuition increase. The Board of Education, Board of Higher Education, uh, voted that in for next year. Of course, this does have to pass through the governor's budget and ultimately the General Assembly. Um, Carl, one of your many hats that you wear is a uh, professor, adjunct professor down at uh, URI. What are your Correct. thoughts on this? Well, again, just like in any business, URI is a business of education of students that there are costs associated with that. And if you look at the infrastructure of URI as a campus, what they have down there, it's really amazing. You know, the new $120 million engineering building, the F School of Pharmacy, and, you know, all the, all the satellite branches around. And there's a cost to that. And if you look at the in-state tuition, the in-state tuition, 12 9 right, which is really a bargain for in-state people and their vehicles if you don't have those funds that you can get loans on 12000 a year, 
right, are much less than some of the other universities that we know of, and out-of-state students are 30,000. So I think it's just par for the course, and the university needs to look at ways to get other revenue streams. And, and remember now, they're going to have their own board of trustees. So a lot of things will change with URI. So how do we take the money that we have to spend, how do we maximize that money, get rid of some of the waste, and become more viable and become a revenue stream? Because bigger universities have other revenue streams besides tuition. Well, URI state appropriation is less than 10%, and it's been dwindling each year. It automatically comes to mind when I think of this, $10 million for the uh, so-called promise, the taxpayer-funded tuition at CCRI, would that be better spent offsetting tuition? So it's a philosophical discussion. It is, and and when this when this was passed in the General Assembly about the, the promise program. For CCRI. For CCRI, we all knew that eventually it was, t the tuitions were gonna go up in, in every single college and you're seeing it done now and now it's gonna it, it, it just it just can't happen you can't have free tuition for people going into our schools and and then not expect an increase in the colleges it's gonna happen right across the board it's 100% I have one year of college under my belt I would have loved to finish but I couldn't afford it and a lot of kids in that in that and that was what the program was aimed at then there's a question is is it hurting Rick because some people or URI some people will go to um, uh, CCRI for two mm -hmm. years and then over to Rick it's hurting everybody yeah I, I don't I don't think they're necessarily tied together I think the promise program is working the way people expected a hope that it would they've tripled the graduation <coughs> rate to 19 percent right well and it's a new program but the point and I and and Kyle's point is I think is well taken is that if you look and which I think we have to do in Rhode Island is look regionally at how are we as compared to similar colleges community colleges in the area and URI Rhode Island College CCRI is still um, very very competitive and in fact better deals than most of the surrounding states colleges yes. community colleges and and so I think that um, nobody likes increases. Um, the increases are not significant. I mean, you know, obviously it's more money for some than for others, but um, I think that uh, what, the, what the board and what the leadership has done is tried to avoid the situation that we had several years ago where the colleges kind of reduced, didn't have any increases whatsoever. They basically kicked the can down the road and then all of a sudden they had to have a huge increase, tuition increase in one year, which did dramatically affect, affect people, yeah. people and how they were trying to fund their, their education. So I think this is a, more of a positive long-term plan where the college is saying, look, we've got to address increasing costs, but let's do it in a competitive, um, managed fashion. And, and I think that's what there's always doing. that balance between in-state and out-of-state because there's some kids from, from in-state who can't get in, and they take a lot of kids from the mid-Atlantic. There's a lot of New Jersey, Pennsylvania over there because URI's built this national reputation, but they also like their out-of-state tuition, don't they? 50-50 split on in-state and out-of-state. Wow. And remember, our population is shrinking. So, you know, as we do this, we have to start working really aggressively to get students from out of state to come to Rhode Island or URI could be in trouble in, in another decade or so because our population is shrinking. Okay. Before we get into some national stuff, Carl, first of all, this is your uh, first time on Lively. Welcome. Yes, thank I you. just wanted you to talk for a couple of minutes. Carl has championed what is called a lean well, you, you tell us about it, the lean yeah. program, and you've taken this from business and translated it to some areas of state government. Right, and so uh, it's, it's, it's not widely publicized, but the governor signed an executive order in our building at Vibeco, 
And it was the first time in state history that every department head and every union representative for those departments were ever in the same building together. So that's just profound in itself because a lot of the things we're talking about here is getting people together, right? So the governor signed this bill of the lean uh, operational excellence to get government to perform more like business. So with that, we trained, during the first few years of this, we trained over 3,000 state employees for $100,000. Where do you get to train 3,000 people for $100,000? And this is a, a 20 to 40 hour class. So if we can come together and do that, we can conquer some other things. Then we run these improvement events at Department of Labor and Training, the Department of Motor Vehicles, the Rhode Island DEM is our rock star in this, the continuation, where they looked at processes to shrink the time, reduce the cost, and get the people involved because the people on the front lines with this lean process improvement are the ones that have the ideas and solutions so they bring it to management in a traditional sense and they say just mind your business, do the job. Well, the job's not working, so now they get a chance at bat to say this doesn't work. One profound one was there's a really important thing for all the car dealers and anybody that buys or sells a car. It's called title run search. So the title run search traditionally in the state before would take 30 to potentially 45 days. That holds up revenue because the title passes title to the car plus money. And so they did a, a, a process flow map to say, why does it take so long? It's just a piece of paper. And it was the most profound thing as I'm listening to this report out. And the people at the DMV said, we went down, they have, the state has a, a central post office that they distribute the mail. I never knew this. And it's down the street from the DMV in Cranston up there. And they said, we walked down there, we talked to the people at the post office, they said, we're looking for these pieces of paper. He goes, yeah, we see those pieces of paper. And he goes, well, we want them really fast. He goes, well, we deliver them once a week. They cut down seven, no, it wasn't, it's because they said, we only get a few. We didn't know it was really important, but we figured once a week. And the profound thing was they cut seven days out, plus the people in post office said, no one's ever been here to ask us anything and we'll be more than glad to help you what out. We'll bring them up on the hour if you want them if the mail what, comes. What a concept. Government operating as efficiently as business. Good job. Just crazy. Things. I think it's great. I mean, uh, you know, how can you argue? I think that, that it, ha it should be a constant ongoing um, situation where all of us are looking for ways to, to improve government services at as best available cost as you can. I've always been a big one of saying government is not, you know, these, these buildings or the state house. It's, it's people. Yes. It's the people that, that make thing work um, and, and give people a little leeway, give them a little respect, the employees, and, and typically things get done better, faster, and cheaper. Great. We've got a lot of uh, national stuff to get to, of course, <laughs> with the impeachment, but let's do, uh, let's do outrageous first. Doreen, do you have an outrageous week? I have a kudo. Great. Okay. Uh, my kudo is to this guy sitting next to me. To the left, uh, Bill Lynch. Uh, <laughs> he knows what's coming. Um, everybody knows that I got terminated from my job for my political views. And um, he came to my defense. And it's not often that you get a Democrat um, defending a Republican. And people were like, well, did you know he was doing it? And no, I didn't. And I just opened up my email. And I was like, why is Bill Lynch emailing me? And the press release was there. So I, I truly do appreciate it. Thank you. And the reason was because Doreen is the co-honorary chair for the Trump 2020 campaign here in Rhode Island, which we'll be talking about momentarily. I'm not sure it's going to be a kumbaya moment in five minutes, so no, you can bask in it for now. <laughs> I fully expect that we'll be in a fist fight out in the park. Oh, yeah. <laughs> it's only lasted 45 <laughs> seconds. Yeah, you might. Well, so we've had our kumbaya moment. Do you have an outrage or a kudo? I, 
Well, I'm going to pick up a little bit on the Republican-Democrat issue because, and obviously we, maybe we'll talk a little bit about the impeachment, sure. but, you know, I, I, when I watch Mitch McConnell and somebody like Lindsey Graham and how they are behaving in their comments with respect to the impeachment, it's, it's nauseating, to say the least. I mean, if you look at, and in this day and age of films and social media, if you look at their behavior, during the last impeachment process of President Clinton and who got what he deserved and now what their position is publicly it's embarrassing I think and and you know to stand up and do your job I mean these these are people that the framers of the Constitution saw as being leaders who would do the right thing for the country and I think that their flip-flopping and their comments are, are borderline disgraceful. All right, we'll get back to that in a minute. Do you have an outrage or a kudo? I have a big kudo. Okay. So I have a kudo to Kasim Yarn, who's the head of our Veterans Affairs in the state of Rhode Island, and we haven't had one, and Kasim was appointed, I think, four years ago. And the, to the poppies of Flanders Fields on the 11th month of the 11th day, of the 11th hour to all the veterans and all the people and families that support the veterans. So in this week, that's my kudos. That is appropriate. Thank you, Carl. All right, let's get into it. The uh, public phase of the impeachment hearings began this week. Uh, we are actually taping this on a Friday morning, and they, uh, the second day is probably underway even as we speak. All right, uh, Doreen, what is your thought as you watch the first day with two longtime government service, you know, civil servants who had worked over in the Ukraine. I literally watched the whole thing from Did start really? to finish. I mean, I, what else am I going to do at the moment? <laughs> right, but, it's hard to look away. <laughs> you know, I, I did watch the, the whole thing. And I said, I'm going to watch this and I'm going to keep an open mind. And what I saw was a circus. What I saw was, was the, the very credible people that were there. And I thank them for their service and, and the ambassador and Kent. But there was no substantial evidence in the first in the first day. It was, I heard it from this person who heard it from this person who, I mean, I might as well just play the Ario Speedwagon song because that's what it seemed like to me. Now today, you have, the, the woman is coming on today and from what I understand, and, and I did see this on CNN, and I just happened to be switching the channels, not like I'm a CNN watcher. They were talking about her being emotional today, that she cried when she got terminated. So they think that because she might be emotional today, that that's going to help the, help the Democrats. Nothing is going to help the Democrats. They have nothing. What, what it is doing, it is helping President Trump in his re-election campaign. And I see Bill going like this. I know he wants to say something. President Trump will be elected in 2020. Taking that kudo back. Uh, <laughs> no, he will be elected again in 2020. You I think mark what my might words. be problematic is, is that there's no bipartisan. I mean, it's right down party lines. And ultimately, <laughs> will that be DOT, DOA in the Senate? Well, I We're not it, sure. I, I think it does two things. One is, and, and I think Doreen is right about one thing, is that it, it shows, whether we like it or not, the dramatic and at this point almost uh, if can't fix the divide in the Congress and I think that's disturbing and it's in, to people of all parties across the country when they see how divisive and how bitter things have gotten between parties um, in the Congress but what I do say to my Republican friends when this comes up is what would Mitch McConnell and Lindsey Graham and Jim Jordan and some of these Republicans say if President Obama had picked up the phone and called a foreign leader, whether it's the Ukraine or Russia or China, and said, I'm withholding money that has been appropriated by the U.S. Congress for you until you investigate Mitt Romney or Donald Trump 
or Lindsey Graham, they would already have the Capitol Police marching into the, uh, the Oval Office and they'd be dragging President Obama out of there in handcuffs, never mind impeaching him. What so. the Capitol Police should be doing is going to arrest Joe Biden and Hunter Biden for their involvement. Before President Trump even was sworn in, the Democrats, we must impeach. He's not even sworn in yet. He, they well, have that, hated that this was man. A few. From, that's one. Of, it, that's a Republican talking it, point. It's still there. It's still there. It's, it's out there. You can watch it. Tim. You want to come in on this? I'm going to come in. On, I'm going to come in <laughs> on the way outside. So, again, my state. My statement before was. Towns and mayors going after the state. We have two different parties, right? That's what our system was set up on, for the people, by the people. And generally, our pendulum would come into this to try and get a center. Our pendulums now are swinging so far out, and there's no bumpers here, and it's scary how far we're swinging out to this end. Yeah. What's, our, what's our unifier as a nation again? After some, Whatever the outcome is, after something like this, what's bringing us back to center instead of keep swinging to the ends, either party? Yeah, I always say it's almost like you go to a movie and you have two different reviewers and they write this script and that, and it's like, did we all watch the same right. movie? Right. And you can hear, but but there, there are a lot of talking points that are going out that I, on both sides that I hear. But the fact that Lindsey Graham says, this is a sham, I'm not even going to read the transcripts, I'm not I'm not going to listen to the testimony. That bothers me. Well, he, um, I'm sure he read it. I mean, he probably just said Yeah, that. but why would he say that then? Why would why He's would a they... U.S. senator on Fox News every night, uh -huh. so he has an audience that is listening, so they're thinking the same thing. Facts and evidence don't matter. I understand what you're saying, but I still think it's a sham. They, they have nothing. They absolutely have nothing yet. From the first day, they have nothing. Now, when I leave here, I've got to go some, run an errand, then I'm going to go home, and I'm going to continue to watch it. And I, I try to keep an open mind, but I sit there like this, and I'm like, what are they thinking? You know, the question, and, and Schiff, for Schiff to say that he did not know, he doesn't know the whistleblower, the whistleblower was in his office. How do you not know who he is? He is lying 100% to the American people. All right, let's, we only have a couple, the, oh, go ahead. One other thing I would say about this is that this isn't just about Donald Trump anymore, right? This is about what happens going forward. And, and I say to my Republican friends, you know, if, and, and I fully expect that, that Donald Trump will be impeached by the House, but not convicted in the Senate. That's what I think will happen in the end. But what's, what's, what people, I think, shouldn't lose track of is that this sets the tone going forward, right? Donald Trump, he may or may not be reelected. Dorian thinks he will. He I will don't. Be. I don't think he will. But irrespective of that, there will come a time when there'll be a Democratic president. And if it's okay for this president to use his office for personal political gain like Donald Trump did, it's going to happen again under a Democratic president. And at that point, the Republicans can't step forward and say, well, wait a minute, this, he should be impeached or she should be impeached. This isn't appropriate. So this is a much bigger issue for the country than just this one particular instance. Quickly, we have a minute left. Uh, Deval Patrick says he's running. Bloomberg mm. may possibly get in. It's like... I came today because I thought Carl was going to announce this morning that he's <laughs> running. He's got an exploratory so, committee. Someone actually said to me, is Carl <laughs> running? <laughs> I, listen, I, I don't... I, I got to say, I don't understand it. I mean, I, I know Deval Patrick. I like him. I think Who he Who outside great of job. New England knows him? But, but I also don't understand, if you're going to run for president, it's a monumental task. It's a monumental task to run for office state Wide in Rhode Island, we're 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 smaller than some counties in the country, so these smart. Uh, men in this particular case to announce now as opposed to a year ago that they're going to run for president. This may make any sense. You to get me. the last 30 seconds. Thanks. He's announcing now because he sees the candidates that are standing there. None of them are viable. None. I mean, you've got you've got a team of socialists up there. 
the America That's is not ready Republican for socialism. talking point. That's my talking point. You call Joe Biden a socialist? He's looking that way. He's. I'm, they're trying to see who can outleft the other. That's the way I'm looking at it. All so. right. Uh, unfortunately, that's all the time we have. But you know, folks, we'll be back here next week. Uh, Bill, thank you for coming. Doreen and Carl, nice to have you with your debut. We appreciate you coming, folks. Uh, you never know what's going to happen in the next week, but we will have it all covered. We hope you can come back next week as a lively experiment continues. Have a great weekend. A Lively Experiment is generously underwritten by. For more than 30 years, A Lively Experiment has provided insight and analysis of important political issues that face Rhode Islanders. I'm John Hazen White, Jr., and I'm proud to support this great program and Rhode Island PBS.